0: From the Center for Contemporary South Asia at the Watson Institute at Brown University, this is Sensing the Sacred. I'm Finian Garrity. Welcome to Sensing the Sacred, a podcast where we delve into the past and present of religion, politics, and society in South Asia, and where we highlight the latest academic research through conversations with leading scholars. The Mughal Empire was an Islamic dynasty that ruled much of Central and South Asia from the 16th to 19th centuries. It was one of the grandest empires the world has ever known. Tracing their roots to the Mongol warlords of the Central Asian steppe, the Mughals conquered large swaths of territory, including the forbidding and mountainous terrain of the Hindu Kush. But the Mughals did not rely on military might alone to consolidate their rule. They also used works of literature, stories that evoked peoples, cultures, and far-flung landscapes. Through stories, regional factions competed for influence at the Mughal court and sought to define themselves. My guest today is Tanvir Akhtar Ahmed, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Religious Studies at Brown University. Tanvir works at the intersection of Islam and politics in early modern Central Asia. He's currently finishing his dissertation, Radical Shadows of God, Islam and Socio-Political Descent, 1240-1600. Central to his research is a literary compendium from the Mughal era, a collection in Persian called the Afghan Treasury. Narrating the adventures of saints, power brokers, and rebels, these stories illuminate the political imagination of 16th century Afghanistan. As we began our conversation, I invited Tanvir to recount one of his favorite tales from the Treasury. As you'll hear, he's as gifted a storyteller as he is a scholar.
1: So the story goes that around the late 16th century, so this is around the time of the Emperor Akbar, there is a uh, spiritual master, uh, one of God's friends uh, named Sheikh Bakhtiyar, and. One of his disciples gets imprisoned by a provincial governor, and we don't know what the charge is. But either way, the prisoner's family basically goes to Sheikh Bakhtiar for assistance, asking him for help. And immediately, Sheikh Bakhtiar just gets on his horse and rides off for the house of government. And the description of him is that he's aspect turns into that of a raging lion. He starts waving his hands around, he starts shouting Allah, Allah, like shouting God's name as he's riding up to the house of government. So quite understandably, the governor gets very upset at this and immediately throws Sheikh Bakhtiar into prison right alongside his disciple that he came to free. But then in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, the sky turns black, clouds start coming from everywhere, and there is this massive dust storm filled with lightning, and it goes tearing through the house of government, and it destroys the pillars of the, of the Daulat Khana, the, the seat of the governor's power, and everybody in town imagines that the day of judgment has come. It's that bad of a storm. So immediately, the governor orders Sheikh Bakhtiar and the prisoner to be released, and they go free.
0: What is it about that story that attracted your interest, right? What uh, insights does it give us and what does it kind of represent in the context of your research
1: project? So the first detail about the story that really caught me was the storm itself, right? And, and I spent a little bit of time just thinking, okay, how are we supposed to understand what happened with the storm? Like, What's the chain of causality in this story? So is the storm supposed to be a happy coincidence uh, is it supposed to be that the story is actually just a fable or some sort of allegory? And Neither of these things seems to be particularly convincing to me. It seems more likely that there is some sort of epistemological commitment um, amongst the people producing the story or receiving the story about the relationship between this friend of God and the natural phenomenon that uh, takes place when he's imprisoned, right? Similarly, the story also just muddles the divisions entirely between categories of uh, the religious and the political, because we have this question of authority being adjudicated over an individual body, right? The body of the uh, disciple who gets imprisoned. And we also have the relationship between a governor who's been appointed by the emperor and a um, kind of locally well-known spiritual master. Um, And it is mentioned specifically in the story that this is a governor appointed by Akbar, right? So... The expression of, of dissent here, or the expression of political opposition, it seems to occur in both the material realm as we can see it, but also there's a sort of entanglement with an unseen realm, with uh, powers that are accessible to a very specific group of people, and it's trying to get into that mindset and understand that epistemological commitment that I think the story forces us to, to do
0: so who exactly are the saints and spiritual masters Uh, are they are they sufis i mean where where do they fit into the tapestry of central and south asian islam so at the very
1: basic level uh, these are people whom we can say uh, they were held to have some sort of intimacy with god so the way that they're commonly dubbed is they're god's friends right or god's allies and so they're people to whom extraordinary abilities are often attributed Uh, And both in life and after death. So in their lifetimes, people would claim that uh, they perform miracles. And then after they die, they can be visited and miraculous or extraordinary events can still take place. Some things like healings or messages through dreams. Uh, And that's the base level description that I think we can give about people like this. The, The question of whether or not they're Sufis is slightly more difficult, simply because of the ubiquity of materials that we cast as Sufi in this context, right? So, uh, everything from your school curriculum to the poetic expressions that you might use, to the uh, organization of a civic institute like a like a guild, or your personal affiliations with a formal Sufi network, um, or or to be political about it, the language used to express political theory, all of these things are are inflected with what we might understand as Sufi vocabulary, or vocabulary that arises out of a Sufi milieu, or there are people that have connections with formal Sufi orders. So some of the friends of God are shown to initiate followers through oaths in the way that Sufi masters of quote-unquote formal networks initiate masters and uh, initiate disciples and have communities, whereas others basically appear to have no formal affiliation. These are very embedded social actors who live in communities. They have various roles. They have children. They are themselves children. They are spouses. uh, They're school teachers. They negotiate with uh, other communities. They hold seats on local councils. They hold land grants. They participate in military expeditions. So, these are sort of the traits that we can say about the the spiritual masters like Sheikh Shahab Bakhseor. Uh, that are broadly shared not amongst only people in South Asia and Central Asia, but across Muslim societies at at this time. Sufism is a a modern word. There's not necessarily a a clear analog for the term itself uh, in the medieval or early modern context, right? So that these people are Sufis, uh, that's again something I think difficult for me to answer because it's entirely possible to have somebody who is a friend of God, who has no uh, connection to a formal Sufi network. Uh, but the language used to describe them, the traits that they hold, all of that is—it's generated out of a Sufi milieu. So I think that's the way that I would phrase it.
0: This the type of figure that is exemplified by the Sheikh uh, and his uh, disciple in your story. I'm wondering where that kind of figure uh, fits into even broader kind of trends and dynamics. So I'm—can you give me a, a kind of a brief sketch? And this is admittedly a very broad question of religion, politics, and society in this time period. This is actually
1: this is an excellent set of questions to get into how messy the situation is. Uh, we have these periodizations, right, that that we like to use in order to uh, locate ourselves. So there's a divide between medieval and early modern history, or a divide between Central Asia and South Asia, and we're kind of flipping across these, these borders. Um, and that's the language that on one hand we're familiar with in in scholarship. On the other hand, the language in the stories themselves, uh, the sources that I read for these sorts of stories, they have absolutely no relationship to those divides that we're making, right? So if I try for one moment to step back into that world and explain it, then... I would say that the earliest setting for the stories that I'm dealing with here is the time of uh, Timur, the conquered Tamerlane, uh, who by 1400 has created this vast empire that stretches across Central Asia and Iran. Right? And one of the stories that we come across, for example, is about his conquest of what is presently Afghanistan and how one of these spiritual masters actually stops that conquest. But one branch of Timur's descendants basically takes power in what is uh, presently the Indian subcontinent, right? And the people who are in charge, those, those rulers, always present themselves as Timurids. They continuously portray themselves as descendants of Timur. There are very strong intellectual, social, and economic networks between what we call South Asia, Central Asia, and Iran, uh, connecting all of these worlds. And You can see all of that in the literature, architectural, visual arts, the material culture, languages, personal networks uh, that are present throughout the period. I'm trying to talk about a very connected world. Uh, where we cannot easily partition off the history of South Asia from the history of Central Asia or Iran or the Middle East. Um, and at the same time, we have uh, this paradox in in that we talk about Timurids and then we talk about Mughals. The Mughals would not have called themselves Mughals and they would have called themselves Timurids. But on the other hand, there are people, including the Afghans in in a lot of these stories, who do call the leaders Mongols or Mughals. That's where the word Kerms are. That's sort of the, the dual consciousness that's operative within the works, right, within the historical sources that we have. And in that sort of mess of imperial networks, you have these factions that... Uh, comprise the imperial elite uh, that are organized by by various social groups, so Mongols or Turks or Rajputs or Iranians. And the formation of new social groups is actually still, still being done at this point. By 1600, the Afghans are themselves saying, well, we are also a group that's a collective of our own that can compete with these other groups for position and favor and prominence within the empire.
0: So I wanna bring the focus back to your particular research and uh, onto the uh, the Afghan treasury, right? Which is a you know translated title. I wanna to come to this kind of a characterization that you offer of this work as a quote, an expression of contest for imperial patronage and position. Uh, that makes me think of a similar point that uh, Niall Green makes in talking about a movement from saintly narratives to political structures and so i think what i'm getting at is that your work is kind of bringing out the ways in which this ostensibly religious literature right is doing a lot of political work and so i'm wondering if you can kind of say more about this with reference to this particular set of stories and your research on it
1: exactly so I think the the scholarship that Niall Green has done and more recently Will Sherman on precisely this text and the possible motives for comprising it generally makes the point that the goal is to make render Afghans competitive as a faction alongside the existing social groups within the imperial apparatus. And I think to get to uh, this point and to show how how this is actually kind of a fraught thing, there's a story that's apocryphal. It, it's actually from the 18th century, about a hundred years after the Afghan Treasury was composed. But a story that kind of displays the stakes of of composing it, and uh, is is quoted in a lot of the research about the about the Afghan Treasury itself. So the full title of the text that I'm working with here is actually the History of Khan Jahan and the Afghan Treasury, right? and the reason why it's named like this is because apparently there was a Mughal official named Khan Jahan Lodi uh, and he himself was an afghan he was a military officer within the imperial apparatus and uh, at some point there's in in his particular court an Iranian envoy or ambassador shows up from Iran and uh, during their encounter, the Iranian official mentions uh, that Afghans are actually all just descended from jinns, right? Not exactly even full human beings, and. This irritates Khan Jahan so much that he immediately assembles basically a research team and sends them out to compile the correct history of the Afghans and all of their stories. And the result of it is actually this collaborative effort that we now call the Afghan treasury. Right. So the fellow whose name is is on the title, Nematullah, Nematullah is uh, possibly actually an Iranian from the city of Herat, which... Uh, this is, at, at this point, part of the Safavid Empire, not the Mughal Empire, not an Afghanistan. Afghanistan does not refer to uh, that city at this time. He's co-writing it with a uh, attendant, basically, of Khan Jahan, who does identify as Afghan, named Aybat Khan Kaukar. And uh, there are all these other informants and interlocutors that they're interviewing and assembling information from. They're sending people off to what is presently Afghanistan to get stories. And they're also working very heavily as uh, Khan Jahan and Haibat Khan are members of an Afghan diaspora uh, within uh, what, is, what is now India. So it's that history that's connected not so much only by land, but also just by people and where they happen to be, like who are Afghans and what are their stories, no matter what their land, uh, what their present uh, land of inhabitation is.
0: You know, and speaking about this kind of allegation, right, that Afghans are just uh, the, you know, children of jinns, right? A jinn being a kind of supernatural entity. How should we think about jinns in this context?
1: So in in this context, jinns are basically... uh, the other sentient creation right so human beings are sentient and and capable of of taking on moral responsibility they're made out of uh, dust within the cosmology they're made out of earth or clay um, and therefore they're inhabitants of the earth they're visible they're material uh, fixed in form relatively speaking etc uh, etc et jinns are creations of smokeless fire to use the quranic uh, definition for them, and are somewhat more subtle beings in that case, right? So they're inhabitants of an unseen realm. They're inhabitants of uh, of a realm that intersects with the material one uh, in all sorts of different ways. And they sometimes manifest, uh, but they are non-human beings, basically, essentially, with, uh, with no clear lines as to what they actually are. Uh, but they also act as moral agents in a way that only other human beings do as well. So in this cosmology, animals, for example, or angels, uh, they're not moral agents in in the same way.
0: A theme of your research seems to be that today's epistemologies, right? And by that, I mean just approaches to knowledge, can only go so far in grasping these early modern stories of unseen powers and miracles. And then you also kind of make what I think is a really fascinating point that political dissent, even in these stories, uh, takes place in the realm of the supernatural, even as it strives to affect changes in the real world, quote unquote. I think you're you're really showing how we can't neatly separate the secular from the sacred, the religious from the political. And so I'm wondering just, you know, in, in trying to study these texts, how do you adjust your approach to knowledge accordingly? Are there Terms and categories that uh, seem more helpful? This is a this is a very tough question. Um, right, yeah. I'm just giving you a softball. Off course.
1: <laughs> I try and, and take a lot of cues from my advisor, who, who was the one that really drove these points, a lot of these points home for me.
0: And this is Shazad Bashir.
1: This is Shazad Bashir, right? So his own works, I think that the way I try to crudely concretize some of this stuff for myself is um, maybe through a quotidian story of, of a day in the life back in what I imagine it might have been like, right, to, to live in the 16th and 17th century. So in this world where the unseen realm is so uh, enmeshed and overlayered with observable reality and just constantly erupts into it through these various mechanisms, right? So one might imagine that, that you go to sleep And that in your dream, you uh, see your deceased grandmother and she says something to you which is um, inscrutable or it's difficult to understand. So you wake up and at some point you resolve, okay, I'm going to go and visit a dream interpreter who might be able to tell me uh, about what the actual meaning of the dream was. And you may consider that that may have actually been my grandmother, right? She may have actually communicated with me. Uh, You walk down the street and you pass these shrines that have, uh, this one over here has a stone with a particular footprint in it or an indentation that people say that was the uh, hoofprint of the donkey that uh, the prophet's son-in-law uh, rode around in, 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 uh, and the hoof of the donkey made that impression and you can visit that stone and it will have some sort of effect on you, right? You hear news about a military victory and you understand this perhaps as a and as an expression of divine will, right? You pass a royal procession, and the body of the king is, uh, again, this, this possible place for the divine to, to show up, for the unseen realm to, be, uh, to pass through into the material realm. You encounter a saint or, or one of God's friends, uh, such as Sheikh uh, Shah Bakhtior. And it's, again, possible that something will happen that will demonstrate his extraordinary power. Right? And, and these aren't considered coincidences or delusions, right? These are social facts. Mm, these eruptions of the unseen into the material realm. Um, and and I, I I do think that the situation isn't entirely divorced from... You know the world we live in right now, right? Like psychiatrists make a killing doing dream interpretation nowadays. Uh, it's <laughs> it's a it's still a form of trying to untangle these sorts of things. And oh um, that's the world we're also talking about here in the past. Um, but it's the ubiquity of these encounters and the different ways in which you might encounter it that I think uh, we have to try and trick ourselves into into understanding almost like reading a good novel, like you suspend your disbelief for a moment.
0: We have a tendency sometimes to oppose the kind of metaphysical and the physical as, but you're talking about these kind of unseen realms that are, uh, and forces that are manifesting in very material ways, right, in the body. So I guess what I'm kind of getting at here is just that I wanna kind of come back to this issue of the importance of bodies and embodiment and the physical in the stories of uh, these saints, of, of God's friends. Can you talk more about that?
1: In the stories that I'm working with that are included within the text, a lot of these uh, hagiographical tales, the way that I think about the body is about the extraordinary events that actually do occur when it comes to these uh, gods' friends, right? So many of the extraordinary events are actually entirely embodied, right? One of them causes an entire army to go blind. Uh, Another one causes a king's limbs to swell up until the king dies, Um, another one survives being put in a fire and then protects a woman who's with him from also being consumed by the fire and they sit in the oven and and eat kebab, basically. Uh, But the, (laughs) and and, and in other cases about these stories, the body is actually a source of of, of great social anxiety, right? That provokes incidents that themselves initiate a story of dissent. in, In one story that I've come across, a sheikh hugs a woman in public, right? And then is immediately arrested for an inappropriate display, like PDA. Like friends of God are not supposed to do PDA, right? Um, a- another one is arrested on the accusation that he's been touching women's hands while initiating them as his disciples, right? So, there's an anxiety not only about the body, it's it's a heavily gendered anxiety about the human body. And the question that is posed by that anxiety is, who has the authority to adjudicate right and wrong about the body, right? So, in, in Sheikh Bakhtiar's story, the one about the storm, the question is, well, does the governor have the authority to adjudicate the body of a disciple? Or is it actually the spiritual master that has initiated that disciple? And that's part of the interplay that I see going on there. So the body is constantly being domesticated and its activities are being regulated in the stories uh, by the sort of arbiters of of social justice, like the governors and the emperors, the kings. But God's friends can consistently and kind of cheerfully violate all of these norms uh, imposed by society about how the body is supposed to work. And their transgressions are continuously showing that the norms have, have a sort of hollowness to them about the body,
0: this idea of kind of policing the body, right. And, uh, the body as a kind of site of conflict, I think connects with another theme that you develop in your work. And this is the, the issue of a kind of specifically Afghan identity. And you, you emphasize the rebelliousness, right. As a kind of latent quality of Afghan religious and political culture, almost a kind of just embedded potential for opposition. So why do you see this possibility of conflict, right? Why do you see that as,
1: as so central? So I think this is this is an extraordinarily tricky subject for me, right? Because there has been so much literature produced by empires. I mean, and, and this is moral Empire, British Empire, American Empire, take your pick, uh, that that essentializes uh, Afghans as rebellious, right? This is a racialized category of Afghans are unruly or Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires, uh, so on and so forth, right? And in in my view, the Afghan treasury actually makes the exact opposite maneuver, right? It offers proof after proof after proof after proof that Afghans are loyal servants of government. They've produced many noble rulers. They're perfectly suitable to managing a vast empire, uh, ideal civic servants in, in, in some way, right? So the acts of rebellion that we're dealing with here, or the acts of dissent, are very much pushed to the periphery of the text. They, they comprise a mere fraction of the entire thing, right? One percent, that, that level of, of fraction. But I think that what's important to me is that just because these stories are on the periphery of a text... It uh, does not mean that they're marginally important, but I think they actually are a critical piece of a very complex maneuver being performed by the folks in the 17th century. Right? So these tales of rebellion, at the end of the day, scattered as they are, um, unthemed as tales of rebellion, if we look at the work being done by the contents they're inscribing a sort of limit to the rulers' authorities over Afghan communities. So, Afghans are all the things that are being established by Harawi and all his interlocutors in terms of being good civic servants, good soldiers, good subjects, loyal, so on and so forth, good Muslims. It's a very important one. Champions for Islam. But if there is a governor that does something wrong or transgresses into an Afghan community by committing an act of oppression. And I think what these stories are doing is that they're sort of holding out the possibility for, well, there is a possibility of defying that. There is a possibility of saying that, no, the governor's authority does not actually extend to being able to just unequivocally dictate what happens within the Afghan communities. And that is accomplished precisely because of the presence of God's friends amongst the Afghans. Because the the actions of God's friends are presumed to be legitimate, given their intimacy with God, so therefore their opposition to the governor can also be presumed as a legitimate opposition. So this is For me, not so much uh, something that I see as a concern with only the Afghan past as it's being recorded within this historical work, but it's also possibly a way to potentially legitimate future acts of disobedience uh, if they happen to take place. It's not that acts of disobedience are desirable to the Afghans or desirable specifically to the people who are involved in composing the Afghan treasury, but if they do happen to happen, then they're not... Because Afghans are demi-human, right? They're not because Afghans are innately barbaric. They're not because Afghans are just people who love to rebel and love chaos or love to make an outcry, uh, as as one kind of popular slur goes. It's because they are people amongst whom God's friends are are numerous.
0: So, if we take a step back, then what does your research suggest about? you know, in broad terms, about the formation of these Indo-Muslim identities and religiosities. You know, how is Afghan uh, Islam in this period uh, distinctive from other streams of Islam in Central Asia, in South Asia, beyond? Or is it distinctive?
1: Yes and no, I think. Um, in the way that I I see a work like the Afghan treasury, it utilizes an immense number of tropes that are common to not only contemporaneous Central Asia, Iran, South Asia, but for hundreds of years uh, have also been employed, right, to discuss matters of uh, God's friends, matters of politics, matters of the correct life or the the ideal life. Um, so in that way, it's a work like the Afghan treasury and the sort of religious lives as lived by Afghans in the 17th century and for the preceding centuries they are part of a broader pattern. But the project itself, right, this specific project of the Afghan treasury, that is something unique, right? The negotiation that the Afghans have to make at the court, that Khan Jahan's sort of irritation at this Iranian ambassador, his reaction to the Iranian racism, right? That is, that is a condition that prompts a specific endeavor. Okay, collect the history of, of a people. And so this work is... It's different from a historical work that, for example, organizes itself over a history of this land, that land, and this land, right? It's not a history of place. It is a history of people. And that sort of organizational impulse, I think, does distinguish what's going on here. It makes it unique enough of a case to discuss on its own. Um, But while the socio-historical circumstances render this this production of Islam amongst Afghans, uh, its own case, the tropes that people are drawing upon, the language that people are drawing upon, the presumed understandings of what it would mean to tell a story about one of God's friends, um, those are things which are broadly shared across both uh, space and, and centuries. Can I uh, ask you a question now that's a little bit
0: more personal in nature, and it just It relates to your own story as a scholar. Uh, I'm I'm always fascinated to learn uh, how people come to study what they study. So how did you come to take an interest in this part of the world, this time period,
1: and these materials? I was an undergraduate in D.C. I worked for a lot of NGOs. I was taking a lot of IR classes. And and basically... Every IR classes with a heavy in, uh, emphasis on, on uh, Middle Eastern studies, South Asian studies, Islamic studies. And um, all the time, you you just come across representation after representation of Muslim societies as basically these lands of perpetual barbarians, uh, right? Perpetual barbarism, and they're all barbarians. And there's this sort of pseudo-theological salvation that's necessary for them, right? It, it, invariably, the the salvation will come by a sort of system imposed by foreigners, right? Uh, Westernization, democracy, modernism. And and this is something that just over and over and over again, I felt like I was encountering. And then when I started pursuing a graduate career, I was extraordinarily fortunate in terms of uh, advisorship. But when it comes to just sort of materials that you read and the sort of things that you encounter uh, from other sources, there is still this idea that, well, within Islamic history, like people are sheep for a really long time. And this sort of dangerous narrative of, well, by the 19th century, you start seeing people's movements, you start seeing a little bit more uh, popular revolt or or popular organization. So it coincides very neatly with European colonialism. And there's this overlap between scholarly narratives, media narratives, popular narratives – about Muslims and their histories. And and I think they actually do function as a sort of support for modern civilizing missions and themselves kind of wrapped up in all sorts of extractive relationships and the security state and, and so on and so forth. So the hope was really to try and do something to chip away at that support that uh, they get from the academic side of things by looking at, well, what if we presume the opposite thing? That, that what if we actually do look at all of these instances of revolt and dissent and opposition that continuously get mentioned throughout uh, sources, throughout history. And I I think the narrower focus on Central Asian and Persian language materials actually comes from uh, this revolutionary Iranian sociologist that I used to read a lot of, Ali Shariati, uh, in undergrad. And, and he had this short treatise on some rebellious Sufis and some folks in, in a city of Sab in in the mid 1300s. And I just got completely enchanted by it. And so when it came to the dissertation, I started the research with, with that particular incident and, and basically started expanding the focus out from there and just tried to see where the connections took me. So what strikes me
0: in what you just said is there's a, an element in which your own intellectual project is an act of intellectual dissent, right? Scholarly dissent. I'm hearing interesting echoes in terms of some of the themes that you're focusing on the, in, in in the literature
1: itself. I think in so much as it is possible to enact scholarly dissent in our current circumstances, I would love to try and, and accomplish something like that, but I'm yeah. not certain and, and relatively pessimistic about the possibility of doing so. I, I think that we talk a lot about disruption, we talk a lot about decolonizing this and that, um, but there's a lot of work that has to be done and it cannot be done by, by a single person, right? Like it is precisely, I think, creating scholarly connectivities and, and talking with other folks and, and seeing other people's projects that one can establish any sort of counter movement.
0: Well, you just mentioned pessimism. Uh, so kind of a, as my final question, uh, I want to turn to the, the present moment of contested elections, systemic racism, and this grinding pandemic, right? Lots of grounds for uh, pessimism. Uh, And so I'm just wondering, I mean, can we take any lessons from God's friends, from these blessed men about uh, how to navigate our current
1: political and social crises? That's an absolutely lovely question, right? I I think that it's the hope to be able to try and connect our moment to whatever we're studying, because there is always a connection. I do believe that. I, I just... Um, it is hard to sometimes draw it out. Um, if there's one thing that really comes across to me from the stories, like these Afghan friends of God, it's that the ruler's authority is never complete, right? The political authorities make all sorts of claims, wildly universalizing claims, right? And this is true for that context and this one as well. Um, but these stories portray the authority of the ruler as confined, right? And not even just the stories that I work on for the Afghan treasury, but in, throughout my research overall, I would be more comfortable making the claim that uh, in many different ways, uh, these quote unquote friends of God confine rulers' authorities. Some, some of them do it through legal arguments. Some of them do it through social norms, Uh, Some of them do it through simply showing up and having an apocalyptic dust storm uh, happen. There is always a way in which a reminder is being issued that the authority is not complete. Um, And it's, it's really hard for me to remember that sometimes in the digital age between news bombardments and terrifying state centralization and the reach that corporations have into your home and the amount of control that the overlords have over all of our material circumstances. But it, it can lead to one sometimes feeling as if there is no escape. (laughs) But the the stories are actually a comfort in that way, right? Because God's friends are also just always gesturing towards a greater authority. And it is a comfort to me, at least, um, on a personal level, that the rulers are are just people. They're fragile, delicate (laughs) beings like any other creature. And in the end, their power uh, has its limits. So
0: I suppose we could say that the the struggle continues as it must.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a very eternal one.
0: Well, uh, Tamvir Ahmed, thanks so much for joining me today and talking to me. It was just such a treat to hear about your research.
1: Thank you so much for, for the conversation and for the absolutely fantastic questions as well.
0: This episode of Sensing the Sacred was produced by me, Finian Garrity, with assistance from Alina Coleman, We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. You can subscribe wherever you listen. If you like the show, leave us a rating and review so that others can find us. To learn more about Sensing the Sacred and Watson's other podcasts, visit our website. We'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.